And if you have a Bible, uh, turn to 1 Kings chapter 20. In the church Bible, that's page 361, and in the larger print Bibles, 556. First Kings 20, and we'll read the whole of chapter 20. Now Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mustered his entire army, accompanied by 32 kings with their horses and chariots, he went up and besieged Samaria and attacked it. He sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, saying, This is what Ben-Hadad says. Your silver and gold are mine, and the best of your wives and children are mine. The king of Israel answered, Just as you say, my lord the king, I and all I have are yours. The messengers came again and said, This is what Ben-Hadad says. I sent to demand your silver and gold, your wives and your children. But about this time tomorrow, I am going to send my officials to search your palace and the houses of your officials. They will seize everything you value and carry it away. The king of Israel summoned all the elders of the land and said to them, See how this man is looking for trouble? When he sent for my wives and my children, my silver and my gold, I did not refuse him. The elders and the people all answered, don't listen to him or agree to his demands. So he replied to Ben-Hadad's messengers, tell my lord the king, your servant will do all you demanded the first time, but this demand I cannot meet. They laughed and took the answer back to Ben-Hadad. Then Ben-Hadad sent another message to Ahab, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if enough dust remains in Samaria to give each of my men a handful. The king of Israel answered, Tell him, one who puts on his armor should not boast like one who takes it off. Ben-Hadad heard this message while he and the kings were drinking in their tents, and he ordered his men, Prepare to attack. So they prepared to attack the city. Meanwhile, a prophet came to Ahab, king of Israel, and announced, This is what the Lord says. Do you see this vast army? I will give it into your hand today, and then you will know that I am the Lord. But who will do this? asked Ahab. The prophet replied, this is what the Lord says. The junior officers under the provincial commanders will do it. And who will start the battle, he asked. The prophet answered, you will. So Ahab summoned the 230 junior officers under the provincial commanders. Then he assembled the rest of the Israelites, 7,000 in all. They set out at noon while Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings allied with them were in their tents getting drunk. The junior officers under the provincial commanders went out first. Now Ben-Hadad had dispatched scouts who reported, men are advancing from Samaria. He said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. If they have come out for war, take them alive. The junior officers under the provincial commanders marched out of the city with the army behind them. 
and each one struck down his opponent. At that, the Arameans fled with the Israelites in pursuit. But Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, escaped on horseback with some of his horsemen. The king of Israel advanced and overpowered the horses and chariots and inflicted heavy losses on the Arameans. Afterwards, the prophet came to the king of Israel and said, Strengthen your position and see what must be done, because next spring the king of Aram will attack you again. Meanwhile, the officials of the king of Aram advised him, Their gods are gods of the hills. That is why they were too strong for us. But if we fight them on the plains, surely we will be stronger than they. Do this. Remove all the kings from their commands and replace them with other officers. You must also raise an army like the one you lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot, so we can fight Israel on the plains. Then surely we will be stronger than they. He agreed with them and acted accordingly. The next spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Arameans and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. When the Israelites also mustered and uh, were given provisions, they marched out to meet them. The Israelites camped opposite them like two small flocks of goats, while the Arameans covered the countryside. The man of God came up and told the king of Israel, this is what the Lord says. Because the Arameans think the Lord is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands, and you will know that I am the Lord. For seven days they camped opposite each other, and on the seventh day battle was joined. The Israelites inflicted a hundred thousand casualties on the Aramean foot soldiers in one day. The rest of them escaped to the city of Aphek, where the wall collapsed on 27,000 of them. And Ben-Hadad fled to the city and hid in an inner room. His officials said to him, Look, we have heard that the kings of Israel are merciful. Let us go to the king of Israel with sackcloth round our waists and ropes round our heads. Perhaps he will spare your life. Wearing sackcloth around their waists and ropes around their heads, they went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. The king answered, Is he still alive? He is my brother. The men took this as a good sign and were quick to pick up his word. Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad, they replied. Go and get him, the king said. When Ben-Hadad came out, Ahab brought him up into his chariot. I will return the cities my father took from your father, Ben-Hadad offered. You may set up your own market areas in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. Ahab said, on the basis of a treaty, I will set you free. So he made a treaty with them and let him go. By the word of the Lord, one of the company of the prophets said to his companion, strike me with your weapon. But he refused. So the prophet said, because you have not obeyed the Lord, as soon as you leave me, a lion will kill you. And after the man went away, a lion found him and killed him. The prophet found another man and said, strike me, please. So the man struck him and wounded him. Then the prophet went and stood by the road waiting for the king. 
He disguised himself with his headband down over his eyes. As the king passed by, the prophet called out to him, Your servant went into the thick of the battle, and someone came to me with a captive and said, Guard this man. If he is missing, it will be your life for his life, or you must pay a talent of silver. While your servant was busy here and there, the man disappeared. That is your sentence, the king of Israel said. You have pronounced it yourself. Then the prophet quickly removed the headband from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. He said to the king, this is what the Lord says. You have set free a man I had determined should die. Therefore, it is your life for his life, your people for his people. Sullen and angry, the king of Israel went to his palace in Samaria. This is God's word. Winston Churchill is one of the most famous English men. In fact, he has been called the greatest English man. Even though he died in 1965, he has certainly not been forgotten. And it's been talked about at the moment because a film has just come out about a part of Churchill's life. That film deals with just a very short period of time, around May 1940. That was when Churchill became prime minister, and it was just as the Nazis were rampaging their way across Europe, one country at a time. They appeared to be totally superior and totally unstoppable. And they had their eye on England. It looked like their next move would be to cross the channel and invade England. And as Churchill became leader, he faced intense pressure from his own party to enter into peace talks with the Nazis to see what terms Hitler might offer. And the reasoning was, Hitler is just too strong for us. We cannot fight him and win. So let's not even try. Let's ask him for peace and maybe he'll allow us to keep some of our freedoms. That was the logic Churchill was being bombarded with day and night. But he resisted it because he understood this. There are some enemies... There are some enemies you don't try to make peace with because their only aim is to destroy you. Churchill could see in the midst of that situation, Hitler was not interested in some sort of live and let live compromise. Hitler was aiming at total conquest, total dominance. Churchill saw there could be no peace with the Nazis. The only way to deal with an enemy like that is to fight them and never, never, never give up. And today we have reason to be thankful for Churchill's insight and his perseverance, even when he stood alone at times. If Churchill had tried to make peace with Hitler, the chances are we would all be living today under a very different regime. Now I mention that 
because it takes us straight to the heart of the passage we just read a moment ago. The point of 1 Kings chapter 20 is that there are some enemies you don't try to make peace with because their only aim is to destroy you. And as you and I look at this, we'll notice it's not just a lesson for ancient Israel to learn. The Bible wants us to learn there are some enemies you don't try to make peace with because their only aim is to destroy you. If we turn back to this passage, in verses 1 to 12, we are introduced to an enemy of God's people. Now that needs some explaining. Not the enemy part, that's obvious enough. The bit that needs explaining is the God's people part. It needs explaining because of what we've seen so far in 1 Kings. We haven't exactly seen Israel acting like God's people. Their commitment to the Lord has been pretty weak and watery at the very best. We've heard Elijah's challenge to Israel about wavering between two opinions. It doesn't seem they have utterly rejected the Lord, but they're not too bothered about him either. They've been willing to go along with whatever kind of worship their king or queen told them to go along with. And recently, that's meant going along with Baal worship. So at this point in history, Israel is not very committed to God. But it turns out God is committed to them. We've seen how he sent Elijah to remind Israel of God's commitment to them. On Mount Carmel, Elijah referred to the Lord as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. That's a reminder. God not only has a history of commitment to these people, he has a current commitment to them. What started way, way back with God's promises to Abraham is still going on in Elijah's time. God still intends to bless all peoples on earth through these descendants of Abraham. For all their waywardness, they're still God's chosen people, precious to him and central to his plans. That's why during the time of 1 Kings, we can refer to the enemies of Israel as the enemies of God's people. But what about King Ahab? How are we supposed to see him in all of this? Well, he's not an impressive character. He's been leading Israel away from the Lord. But if we're going to understand this passage, we have to see at this point in history, Ahab is the king of God's chosen people. Whatever Ahab himself might be, whatever sort of character he is, he has still been entrusted by God with leadership of God's people. So as a person, Ahab might be pretty close to the worst king Israel could possibly have. But that's not the main concern in this passage. The main issue here is that Ahab has a God-given responsibility to act in the best interests of God's people. When you and I understand that, 
we're in a position to understand this fairly unusual passage. When we read in chapter 20, verse 1, that Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, besieges and attacks Samaria and Israel, we know what we're dealing with. We know Ben-Hadad is not just an ambitious king attacking another nation. Ben-Hadad is an enemy of God's people. And it quickly becomes clear, he doesn't just want to subdue God's people, he wants to humiliate them and then crush them into the dust. Verse 1 says he comes not just with his own army, he is accompanied by 32 kings with their horses and chariots. And where he's coming from is Aram, which is to the northeast of Israel. And these 32 kings are probably not kings of nations. They're tribal kings who come from the same area as Ben-Hadad. Each of them have brought their fighting men and their equipment, and together they make up a formidable army, tens of thousands of them. And as they arrive, Ben-Hadad sends a message to Ahab in the middle of verse 2. This is what Ben-Hadad says. Your silver and gold are mine, and the best of your wives and children are mine. The king of Israel answered, Just as you say, my lord, the king, I and all I have are yours. Ahab is falling over himself to give Israel away to this enemy. In fact, Ben-Hadad seems to be a bit taken aback by how easy this is. So he immediately sends back another messenger saying, actually, I'm not just going to take your wealth and your wives and your children. I'm going to take them in the most humiliating way I can think of. I'm sending my man in to loot the place. So if you have anything good that I didn't think to ask you for, they'll find it and I'll have that too. And that makes even Ahab a bit irritated. So he consults the tribal elders of Israel. They supply a bit of backbone to the situation. And Ahab sends another message to Ben-Hadad. Sorry, I'm still willing to give you all that you asked for, but I cannot let you utterly humiliate Israel. It's not exactly bold defiance from Ahab, but it does make Ben-Hadad properly angry. He says, never mind silver and gold, wives and children. When I'm finished, even dust is going to be scarce in Israel. This king of Aram is a committed enemy of God's people. But in the verses that follow, he becomes an enemy defeated by God. Look at verse 13. Meanwhile, while all this toing and froing was going on, a prophet came to Ahab, king of Israel, and announced, this is what the Lord says. Do you see this vast army? I will give it into your hand today. And then you will know that I am the Lord. The Lord is going to defeat Ben-Hadad, not because Ahab deserves it, not because Israel deserves it. The Lord will do it to show his people who he is, to show his power and his commitment to his people, so that Israel will see no enemy can turn God's plans to dust. 
No enemy can do what he likes with God's people. And to prove this victory is God's rather than Ahab's, God's prophet says the junior officers are to lead out Israel's army. That's how the NIV translates it. But the word is usually translated young lads. It's the word used previously in the Old Testament of David. Not when he was a king, but when as a young man he went out to fight the Philistine giant Goliath. He's described as a young lad. At the time, it seemed a totally one-sided fight. David was young, he was inexperienced, he was going to fight a huge, battle-hardened warrior. And so here, what God is saying to Ahab is, I want you to make the first move against this vast army from Aram. And you're to send the young lads at the head of the attack. Your least experienced soldiers. Why? Because when you win, there will be no doubt at all, it was I, the Lord, who won the victory. And sure enough, Israel does win. Helped in part by the fact that Ben-Hadad doesn't seem to take them seriously. When Israel's young lads lead the charge, Ben-Hadad and his tribal kings are too drunk to give any kind of, kind of coherent orders. It ends up being a whitewash for Israel. Ben-Hadad escapes, but the Arameans suffer heavy losses. And we might think that would be it. But Ben-Hadad is such a committed enemy of God's people that he will not give up. His advisors have a bright idea for him. It seems Israel's gods are gods of the hills. We lost because we fought Israel on the wrong battlefield. If we move it next time to the plains, we're bound to win. Now, if they'd done any kind of research, they would have discovered the Lord's power is not limited like that. But Ben-Hadad likes their idea, and so we read down in verse 26, the next spring... Ben-Hadad mustered the Arameans and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. When the Israelites were also mustered and given provisions, they marched out to meet them. The Israelites camped opposite them like two small flocks of goats, while the Arameans covered the countryside. The man of God came up and told the king of Israel, this is what the Lord says. Because the Arameans think the Lord is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands and you will know that I am the Lord. And sure enough, the result is the same as last time. The Lord gives Israel victory. The Arameans suffer massive crippling casualties. Ben-Hadad is an enemy doubly defeated by the Lord. There can be no suspicion the first victory was just a fluke. The Lord has shown himself to be God of the hills and the valleys. He's shown himself to be the God that no enemy can overpower. And equally, Ben-Hadad has shown himself to be a dedicated enemy of God's people. He is in this fight for the long haul. 
He was willing to come back and continue the fight even after terrible losses the first time. And before we go on to see what Ahab does after the second victory, we need to realize this incident is part of a much bigger story in the Bible. As far as the Bible is concerned, Ben-Hadad is just one representative of the ultimate enemy of God's people. The Bible refers to him as Satan or the devil. Sometimes the Bible tells us he attacks God's people with vicious force, like here in 1 Kings 20. And sometimes the Bible tells us the enemy attacks with subtle seduction. That was his very first tactic. Genesis chapter 3 tells how Satan took the form of a snake to entice Adam and Eve. He cloaked his attack in very attractive words and ideas. He sold it as a way for Adam and Eve to be free. Just disobey God and you will become God. It was seductive, but it was an attack. Satan's only aim was to destroy. He didn't want them to be free or to flourish. And he won that first battle. The man and woman trusted him. They followed his advice and death entered the world. But on that day, something else happened. God promised to defeat Satan. He said to the snake, Satan's representative in that situation, you will strike the heel of the woman's offspring. In other words, you will do him harm. But he will crush your head. Meaning, he will finish you in the end. You will strike the heel of the woman's offspring, but he will crush your head. And that promise by God in just the third chapter of the Bible is worked out in the rest of the Bible. As history unfolds from the Garden of Eden onwards, the enemy does his very best, not just to wound humanity, but to destroy it. And later, God promises Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. As soon as that happened, as soon as it became clear that God's plan to crush Satan centered on Abraham's descendants, then Abraham's descendants bear the brunt of Satan's anger and Satan's attack. Ben-Hadad and his army are just one of many representatives of Satan trying to crush God's people, dedicated to destroying the blessing God has promised for the world. How does this relate to you and me today? Well, when we get to the New Testament, we meet, finally, the offspring of the woman who was promised in Genesis chapter 3. The one who would be struck by Satan, but who would, in the end, crush Satan's head. It's Jesus Christ. And Jesus is also the descendant of Abraham who would bring blessing to the whole world. That's why the New Testament is very careful to show us not just Jesus' deity, his godness, but also his genuine humanity. 
He is the offspring of the woman. He is the descendant of Abraham. That's why the very first verse of the New Testament traces Jesus' ancestry all the way back to Abraham. And we're told Jesus came to win an ultimate victory over the enemy of God's people. The Apostle John says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. As we read on in the New Testament, we discover how Jesus did that. On the cross, Jesus was struck by Satan. As Jesus died, it really did seem like Satan had won after all. But as Jesus died and then rose, he was doing what needed to be done to crush Satan's head. The book of Hebrews explains it like this, talking about Jesus. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. In another place, we're told Jesus triumphed over the devil by the cross. He did that by paying the debt of sin that was hanging over us. Then he rose from the dead, breaking the power of death. What that means is the ultimate enemy of God's people is an enemy who has been defeated by God. And that doesn't mean Satan has given up. It means he can't win. He does not hold the power of death over God's people. He's been disarmed of his power to crush God's people. And when Christ returns, Satan will lose even the ability to bruise God's people. But in the meantime, he is a dedicated enemy. He knows he's lost the war, but the New Testament tells us he is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. He knows he can't win, but he carries on the fight more furious than ever. So Satan is the supreme example of the fact that there are some enemies you don't try to make peace with because their only aim is to destroy you. It would be unthinkable for us to try and make peace with our greatest, most dedicated enemy. He's not interested in peace. He might pretend to be, but it is just pretending. His hatred of God's people is as great as it's ever been. Now, you and I probably realize that if we've read the Bible. And so, if the devil were to stroll up to us, We probably wouldn't try to negotiate with him. We probably wouldn't try to make peace with him. But what you and I are sometimes prone to do is to try and make peace with Satan's representatives. We have an example of that right here in our passage. We left Ben-Hadad badly beaten and hiding. Look what happens next in verse 31. 
His officials said to him, Look, we have heard that the kings of Israel are merciful. Let us go to the king of Israel with sackcloth round our waists and ropes round our heads, signs of repentance and humility. Perhaps he will spare your life. Wearing sackcloth round their waists and ropes around their heads, they went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. The king answered, Is he still alive? He is my brother. The men took this as a good sign and were quick to pick up his word. Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad, they said. Go and get him, the king said. When Ben-Hadad came out, Ahab brought him up into his chariot. I will return the cities my father took from your father, Ben-Hadad offered. You may set up your own market areas in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. Ahab said, on the basis of a treaty, I will set you free. So he made a treaty with them and let him go. Ahab has seen Ben-Hadad's dedication to crushing Israel. And yet he takes the initiative to call this enemy his brother. Ahab does a deal with this dedicated enemy and he lets him go. He thinks he has made peace with Ben-Hadad. But Ben-Hadad never does keep his promise to give back the Israelite cities. And three years after this, Ahab will be dead. Shot by an archer from the enemy, from the army of his brother, Ben-Hadad. Ahab is a fool to think Ben-Hadad has become his friend. And God makes sure that Ahab knows it. The last verses of our passage show us the folly of making peace with the enemy of God's people. The Lord sends a prophet to Ahab again. And if you and I ever doubted what a tough life prophets had, these verses prove it for us. Everything this prophet does is by the word of the Lord. We're told that clearly in verse 35. And before he goes off to deliver his message to the king, the prophet asks a friend to strike him. When the friend refuses, the friend is killed by a lion. The prophet's second friend is not going to be caught out like that. So he's quick to oblige by whacking the prophet and wounding him. That might seem very odd to you and me. But this kind of thing was pretty standard for Old Testament prophets. Very often these men were called not just to preach their message, but also to act it out, to make it visual, to dramatize it, if you like. We see that over and over again in the Old Testament. In this case, what is being dramatized is Ahab's foolishness in letting Ben-Hadad go. He refused to strike him like the first friend refused to strike the prophet. And Ahab's end will be no better than the first friend's end. And now it's time to deliver the message to Ahab in person. So the prophet hobbles off, bleeding from who knows where. He disguises himself and he tells Ahab a story. 
Someone gave me the job, he says, of guarding an enemy prisoner during the battle. He warned me I would forfeit my life or I would have to face an unpayable debt if I let this prisoner go. And I did let him go. Ahab says, well, that was stupid. You deserve what's coming to you. At which point, verse 41 says, then the prophet quickly removed the headband from his eyes and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. He said to the king, this is what the Lord says. You have set free a man I had determined should die. Therefore, it is your life for his life, your people for his people. Sullen and angry, the king of Israel went to his palace in Samaria. As we read these final verses, it's important for us to see we are not dealing here with just a falling out between two individuals. This is about Ahab, the king of God's people, setting free a dedicated enemy of God's people. So what Ahab did was not a nice example of forgiveness. It was a refusal to take this committed enemy seriously. Ben-Hadad is not interested in being Ahab's brother. He took his chance to get free so he could fight Israel another day, which is exactly what he does. So this passage is not about whether we should give bad people second chances. It's not dealing with the issue of turning the other cheek. That is not what's in focus here. And so the application for us has nothing to do with whether we should forgive people when they do wrong to us. There are passages in the Bible which address that. This passage is about the folly of making peace with the enemy of God's people. We've seen how the Bible tells us we have a committed enemy called Satan. It's unlikely he'll ever appear to any of us with a tail and horns. That might be just a bit too obvious for us. Our enemy works through representatives. And the Bible calls us to be alert to that. So we'll recognize when we're confronted with the enemy's work, and so we will refuse to do deals with him. Let me give you a little example of what I'm trying to say. Don Carson tells a story about when he was a boy. If you've heard Don Carson speak or if you've read any of his books, you'll know he's an incredibly bright man. And when he was just a boy, one of the teachers in his school began to pick up on that. He tried to help him develop his abilities and realize his potential. The teacher and the pupil formed a friendship. Now, the teacher didn't share Don Carson's Christian beliefs at all, but he was great company. He was a widely read man, and he was able to discuss a whole range of topics and subjects. And Don Carson just lapped it up. 
the attention he was being given, the new horizons this teacher was opening up to him about the world. But he says that one day as he sat in that teacher's office, they were sharing a joke about something. They were having a great laugh together. And the teacher said, Don, I don't think there's anything at all you and I couldn't have a good laugh about. Do you? Don Carson says, in that moment, for the very first time in my life, I knew I was dealing with the enemy. You and I might hear that and say, well, what's the big deal about that? But don't you see, that teacher was making that boy an offer. Don, you have so much potential. You can be accepted by the cleverest circles. You can go far. You can enjoy the respect of high-flying people in the world. If only you'll agree there are no beliefs that are worth taking too seriously. If only you'll drop the idea that some things are worth not just standing for, but maybe even dying for. Dawn, you and I can get along famously. I can open doors for you in the future. If you'll just join me in saying there's nothing at all we can't laugh about. Even hell and judgment. So what do you say? Brother. Last Sunday night we heard from Stuart Burgess here in the church. Another very gifted, very intelligent man. A man whose life would be a whole lot easier if he just stopped saying God created the world. If Stuart Burgess would just go along with the popular line and say this world is a colossal accident, then he would be free from a whole lot of harassment and a lot of people trying to get him fired from his job for his beliefs. Now, you and I, I realize, will probably never have exactly the same experiences as Don Carson or Stuart Burgess. But every single one of us, if we are God's people, will be given the opportunity to make peace with the enemy. The enemy will see to it we're given that opportunity. It might be pressure on us to compromise a biblical lifestyle so that we can keep friends or get promotion, or get a relationship. It might be turning a blind eye at work when customers are being cheated, just to keep ourselves out of trouble. When those kind of situations come along, let's remember, anytime we try to do deals with the enemy, we are going to lose. We will get cheated and bruised by him. He is not interested in helping us or making peace with us. He would love to destroy us. The word the Bible uses is he would love to devour us. 
At the moment, Christians are under intense pressure to buy into an approach to sex and relationships that's radically different from the one God has given us in the Bible. As you and I face that pressure, let's realize our enemy is behind this. And he doesn't want to free us. He doesn't want to make us happy or help us to flourish. He wants to destroy us. That's what's behind his agenda for sex. And the studies show that it's true. Following his lead is harmful and destructive to us and our families. And let's remember too, in the midst of all this, our greatest enemy is not an enemy we need to try and make deals with. He has been defeated at the cross. His time is short. Instead of trying to do deals with him, we can fight against him with confidence. In Ephesians, we read it earlier, we're told, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. James says to us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Our God has not called us to stand alone against an unbeatable enemy. That's not the position we're in. Our God gives us all the equipment and support we need to stand against an already defeated enemy. Satan and his representatives may attack us severely, or they may attack us very subtly and seductively. We have to be alert. We have to be aware of his tactics. But we do not need to cower before him and try to do deals with him. We can stand against him with confidence. He has already lost the war. We're going to join in two final songs that remind us of that truth. We need to be reminded of it often. First of all, O church, arise and put your armor on. <laughs>